श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए गौर भक्त वृंद की जाए गौर प्रेम आनंद हरि गुड इवनिंग एवरीवन सो आई विल स्पीक अ लिटिल बिट टुनाइट ऑन द टॉपिक ऑफ जीव तत्व the uh, ontological truth about the jiva jiva actually means life and so about a unit of life if you will the jiva atma hmm? atma means the the self it's we sometimes translate it as soul but it's a rather uh nebulous idea in a sense that the the christian soul if you will um it's not found in the bible uh it's not described there <laughs> and uh, christianity is imported in in some sectors of it, a platonic idea of of the soul and in some sections the aristotelian idea of the soul which are very different and of course the platonic idea coming from plato hmm, is much uh is much more in common with the uh, vedanta idea of the soul and and an immaterial uh, entity not reducible to matter <clears throat> so so jivatma uh, a a unit an atma a unit of of life <clears throat> a living unit <laughs> something like that um <clears throat> and we uh, go tonight to the bhagavad gita which is also known as the gita upanishad Upanishads are uh those expressions of revelation thought to have come directly from the godhead whereas the puranas for example are thought to be afterthoughts based on the upanishads reflecting on them explaining them further through narratives and so on and so forth um, but because the gita is spoken by krishna it's often thought to be um a upanishadic text gita upanishad it falls within the greater larger context of the mahabharat which is an itihas or a history and a narrative so the gita has a very special position and it's very special uh, for the gaudiya vaishnavas as is the bhagavat the shrimad bhagavatam which i liken to its sequel hmm. if you will and the gita krishna concludes with the idea that one should take shelter of him become his devotee and and uh, and so forth and efficacy or an, an emphasis on the efficacy of bhakti over gyan hmm? um and prabhupada used to describe it as the civilization of the intellect a spiritual intellect spiritually guided intellectual 
kind of dissertation on the nature of the self, the Atma, and on the nature of the Supreme Self, and the fact that they have a relationship with one another, which then the Bhagavad is all about. Hmm. Possibilities of relationships with Bhagavan. This is what it emphasizes. So, with regard to the Atma, one of the subjects of the Gita, this is described uh, mostly in the first six chapters, really from the second chapter to the fifth chapter. Hmm. There is a famous Upanishadic dictum, Tattvam Masi. Have you heard it? Tattvam Masi. And um, the monists, by monists I refer to those who believe that there is only consciousness, no matter. There's two types of monists. That's the ancient type of monist. The ancient type of monist thinks that there's only consciousness, no matter. And that school of thought has been championed and popularized by Shankar, Adi Shankar. We call it Advaita Vedanta, or the Gaudiyas refer to it as Mayavad, as it is referred to in the the Padma Purana. It's a bad, a doctrine of maya, illusion, that the world is, is illusion. It doesn't really exist. It, it, it maintains that there's really only one, one reality called Brahman. There is no world. It's an imagination, a superimposition. And it's very complex how they explain that. This is the hardest part of their, their doctrine to explain away the world, so to speak. So that's a kind of a idealistic... Monism. There's a famous Western scholar called Berkeley, who Berkeley, I guess, is named after, which isn't far from here, an intellectual liberal uh, think tank. And uh, he was an idealist in more modern times, although still quite some time back. Um, and again, an idealist is something like If the tree fell in the forest and no one heard it or saw it, did it actually happen? Hmm? Something like that. So there's no real world. It's all ideas. This is one end of the spectrum. Hmm? Idealism. Hmm? So we go from Shankar's monism, there's only one, Brahman, to a a Western kind of form of it, idealism in Berkeley, and then today's modern um, monism, which is everything's matter, there is no consciousness, just the opposite. Sometimes called physicalism or naturalism, materialism. Um, So uh, both of these seem to be extremes. And the scriptures, they... Uh, seem to lean one way and seem to lean, lean, lean the other way. Not in terms of championing the idea that everything is matter, but uh, I mean that there may be a material world mm-hmm. um, and 
consciousness, therefore there are two, or there may be just consciousness. Hmm? They seem to lean both ways. And so people get evidence for one of the other Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, in the Gaudiya Vaishnavas advocate that there's, that there's a there is a world and there is consciousness. They're one and they're different. They're both shaktis of Bhagwan, and that way they're one, but they're they're very different from one another at the same time in ways which we've discussed and we'll discuss a little more as we enter into the topic of, of Jiva Tattva. So the Upanishadic aphorism, anyway, that I mentioned, Tattva Masi, is, is very famous. Shankar called it the Mahabhak, one of the Mahabhakya, the great sounds of Upanishads that contemplating on one would realize Brahman and the, the fact that the world didn't exist, so to speak. So we don't concur with him on his understanding of the statement, nor the idea that it is the, 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 the main sound of the Upanishads. We give preference to Pranava Omkar. And um, Omkar, the Om, it uh, speaks of difference. A-U-M, it speaks of difference. It speaks of the jiva. It speaks of the... Um, Internal energy it speaks of the of Bhagwan also. Hmm. Um, doesn't say much about about the world, but there is something to be said about the world, and it does exist, just not what it appears to be, according to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So, um, but with regard to the Tattva Masi, we of course render it a little bit differently, and 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 the uh, grammatically, uh, it is also a correct way. To render it, and we say, instead of you are that, uh, you are his. Hmm? Tat and tvam. Tvam means you, and tat means that, or it might mean his. Hmm? Um, you are that is a little hard to compute. Hmm? You are that. You are his. It's a devotional uh, rendering. But at any rate, the Gita speaks about both these things, about you and about that, or him. Hmm? And the second six chapters of the 18 chapters of the Gita, there are three sections of six. The middle section is about him, or about that, about Bhagwan. Hmm? And the first six chapters largely are about, about you, about us, about the jiva. What is the nature of the jiva? When we bring Bhagawan into the picture, and then there's a relationship between the jiva and, and God, the atma and the paramatma, this, the little jiva and the big soul, if you will, hmm? us and God. When you bring God into the picture, then it it creates a certain a, a certain environment. Hmm? that allows the jiva to experience the fullness of its potential. We call that environment bhakti. And I have described that as a nurture aspect of the jiva. Just like we try to figure out whether, what, what, whether things are nurture or nature. There's a big argument. Is homosexuality nature or is it nurture? Is it 
because your parents were weird or something, or is it an environmental thing that that, or is it something that is um, in the nature of that person? It's just a material example, but of his genes or or whatever. Hmm? Um, so there's nurture and there's nature. So the the the, the term that the G, that the Godias use for the jivatma other than jivatma which they use and jivatattva is tatasta tata tata means means the beach it means the shore it means the line that demarks water from from land a line that you cannot put your finger on right it's kind of you're either going to put your land your finger on the water or the sand but there's a the parent lies. The very use of this word, you see, implies what I'm talking about: that the jiva, there's water and there's land. This this analogy, that the land is the is the is the maya shakti and the material environment, and the water is the srup shakti and the spiritual environment that lila takes manifests within. Two sides. And the jiva can be on one side or the other side. It can flourish in one side or exist in one side or another side. One side it won't flourish. It won't be extinguished, but it won't flourish. It won't realize its full potential. It will realize a distortion of its potential. And the other side, under the influence of the sarupshak, you're in the water, so to speak, it can realize its full potential. So that realizing of the potential is a nurture that the environment provides. And that uh, nurture relates to the nature of the jiva. Because of the jiva's nature, it can be nurtured in a particular way. Let's give an example. If we were to invest the sarup shakti or bhakti into a stone, hmm, it would have a different effect than if we were to invest bhakti into a jiva, into an atma, a unit of consciousness. Because of the nature of the two, the result would be different. Do you follow? In other words, the stone, or an atom, a particle of matter, has a different nature than consciousness, which the jiva is constituted of. Right? You follow? One's conscious, the other's not. Uh, and there are other things about the jiva that, that are different from, from matter, of course, as well. All forms of matter are here today and gone tomorrow. And as we'll hear, the jiva's in, 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 enduring and had no beginning and end and so forth. So there's a, there's a difference, anyway, between the nature of the jiva, the atma, and the nature of matter. So if you were to invest bhakti, which is the sarup shakti, the water, in the example of land and water, into a stone or, a, or an atom, you would not get the same result as if you invested it in a unit of consciousness. So because of its nature, it can be nurtured in a particular way. Because matter has a different nature, it cannot be nurtured in the same way. You cannot pour bhakti into a stone and, and it will turn into a cowherd boy. In Krishna Leela, herding cows with Krishna. Mm. Um, Bhakti is pretty powerful, so it can take on a spiritual like quality and so forth. Mm. But uh, if you invest bhakti into the jiva, then 
wonderful things can happen. Spiritual pers- personality can can manifest and and can participate in lila. So that requires the nurture. Here in the beginning of the Gita, Krishna talks about the nature of the jiva. Here in the first, uh, in the second to the fifth chapter. Hmm? Later on in the thirteenth chapter, hmm? also the nature of the jiva is reflected. On in the eighteenth chapter also, it's touched on to some extent. Hmm? So this is a good source to understand ourselves, the Bhagavad Gita. At the same time, it's a source that will be questionable in the world today because the methodology by which the Gita arrives at its conclusions as to the nature of the jiva, of the self, is different than the methodology methodology that is popular today by which we are thought to arrive at truth, conclusive truth. Methodology in, in modern uh, science, um, whereby we are thought to arrive at conclusive truth, is kind of a what we might call a, a third-person objective methodology. Hmm? That means to say that you have a feeling, I have a feeling, hmm? but we about something, but then we experiment with the thing in, in a protected or a, a closed uh, environment, and then we see what it's like independently of how you might think or feel, or I might think or feel it is. And we arrive at third-person objective hmm, understanding. You follow? Hmm. The classical... Um, what is it called? The uh, experiment? The... the the what is it? Scientific method. Well, that's what it is. But what? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, this is became a big thing, of course, in 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 Europe some time back, and it was it's been honed, and and so forth, and so many superstitions have been dispelled and exposed as such, and. Uh, and uh, many, many, materially speaking, good things have come, medicines have come. They may have brought other diseases with them, that's another thing, but, but uh, it looks good at a, at a glance. There are some, we certainly live with benefits of this scientific uh, methodology, and so we, in one sense, we... We do owe a, a, a regard, we, we, we have... We, we live to some extent as sadhakas within a world informed by science and we take advantage of its uh, findings and so forth and uh, we have no objection to that. We just don't bow completely to it. Our, the God on our altar is, is, is different. With some, within limits, we will bow to science. We will bow to anything. That's our, <laughs> we, we, we can respect anything. We have regard for everything. But within limits, hmm. and for Bhagwan, for God, we have all. Then uh, we, we bow un, un, unre, unrestrictedly. Hmm. So there are uh, uh, points in which scientific findings and so forth we take advantage of. They don't contradict Gaudiya Vaishnavism and so forth. But there are points where the, 
it 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 get its head gets a little fat, hmm? and uh, and it and it and it dismisses something very important. Hmm? It dismisses the first person um, experience hmm? altogether, hmm? or too much, hmm? uh, and. Uh, this we find un, un, unreasonable. And the Gita's whole method by which it, it's arrived at what we'll hear about the jiva is all from first-person, some type of first-person uh, discipline. Hmm? That's called bhakti or yoga, spiritual practice. Hmm? Um, so it, it could be in, in many cases in the modern world, is dismissed hmm, because it can't be proved through the scientific method objectively. Hmm. Uh, there was a place, a larger place, in the world of um, thought within human civilization for introspectionism and first-person experience and reporting, first-person reporting, if you will, as to what things are like. There was a larger place for that um, some time ago, even in Western civilization. But there's a school of psychological thought called behaviorism that you may be familiar with that developed in the early 1900s that uh, had a huge sway and influence on psychology, which was the investigation of mind hmm, and, and consciousness, a Western discipline. Um, Behaviorism was the idea that um, that you could take ten children and I could put them in the same environment. I could make any one of them be anything I want by creating an environment for them that would facilitate and, and promote and foster that. So it, it, it became very, very popular, uh, huge, and its its, its shortcomings are... Are, are known now, of course, but obviously it's it's a very um, limited perspective. It, it dismisses altogether internal w- will, feelings, thought, and so forth. Mm-hmm. You could put someone in the same environment and, then, and it's a possibility they could be different. It denies the fact that, well, there are other factors besides the external environment hmm, that uh, cause a person to be whatever he or she is, materially speaking. Hmm. But this was a huge school of thought that 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 dismissed first-person reporting, introspection, as any kind of really valid way of knowing to a large extent. Um, and the 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 rise, if you will, of behaviorism. Hmm, we can attribute the dismissal of first-person reporting. Hmm? You understand what I mean by first-person reporting? It means like, I have an th- th- experience and I report to you on it. Hmm? And it has some validity, has some objective validity. Hmm? Uh, that idea, behaviorism, t- and very, very much uh, dismissed and the rise of behaviorism, more than any f- real fault in first-person 
reporting hmm, about what is mind, what is consciousness. Hmm, um, that rise of behaviorism, more than any fault in first-person reporting, per se, is what caused this first-person reporting to kind of recede to the background and get off, go off almost off the map hmm, and be dismissed altogether. But things change. Hmm. So, with the fall of behaviorism, the, op- the opening comes again. I'm just talking about in Western thinking, hmm? Western civilizations thinking. We live in the, in the Western. Uh, civilization, and we're dealing with the currents of thoughts there. Hmm? We're advocating the Bhagavad Gita, and it's saying all about consciousness. We think this, that's great, but it's first person reporting, if you will. Hmm? So that's why I'm, I'm bringing it up. It's a different methodology. What I mean by that is what Krishna is talking about here. Of course, he's God, but he's talking about what the what the mystics report when they meditate. Hmm? They go within, and then they come back and they report about consciousness, its nature, and so forth. Now, how seriously shall we take that? It's been dismissed largely in Western society, but the more the question of consciousness becomes really a question, an important question, which it hasn't been for a long time. Why has it, was it not for a long time? Well, I talked a little bit about behaviorism, but besides that, of course, in the physical, that's a psychological science. In the physical sciences, then, uh, for a long time, it was thought, uh, kind of at the the beginning of of modern science, um, that the world was like a machine, hmm? and it functioned perfectly as a machine, within itself hmm? and and there was it was a, what they call a closed system hmm? this is what caused some people in the scientific community who were Christians who eventually who originally got into modern science as a way of proving the existence of God hmm? um, started to have doubts about the idea that God could intervene in the world create miracles and which Christianity is based on entirely hmm. right that idea started to become somewhat questionable because they started to look at the world as a machine it was a, like a clock that just worked and so some of the Christians started to become what's called deists deists are those who think that well God set up the world but he doesn't have anything to do with it he started the clock somehow it's going it's going on its own Hmm. So, this is this was a result of a lot of uh, extraordinary findings and so forth, un, un, previously unknown to Western civilization about how the world works. So, it's such a refined way as a machine, and uh, and uh, and so forth. So, they thought they were really getting a handle on matter, and there wasn't much room for consciousness to be, as Descartes thought, kind of different from matter, when he said, cogito ergo sum I think, therefore I am. And he had this dualism, the famous Cartesian dualism. There's consciousness, which he called mind, and the thought world, 
And then there's the physical world. And a thought world influences the physical world. Which is how we function every day. As if our thoughts inform our actions. It's intuitive, but but modern science tends to think it's not true. And there is no thing called thought or, or mind that's independent of matter. It has causal efficacy that can influence matter. Matter is a closed system. Nothing from outside can influence it. We know the forces of, by the, of the world and how it works and so forth. We cannot measure anything called consciousness coming in and influencing. So consciousness is pushed to the background. As, as odd as that sounds. And, and Christian scientists moved from Christians to agnostics to atheists, uh, as it goes. A good number of them, let's say. There are still Christian scientists, theistic scientists, and so forth. But they're, um, they're, they're not the, the, the mainstream. They may be in the mainstream, but they're not popular. They're not, their ideas are just often dismissed and... Uh, and uh, um, ridiculed, and uh, they might not get a job because of them, and, and so on and so forth. So um, that, of course, speaks about something very unscientific. That speaks about the, bi- the human bias as a factor in the objective world of science. You can't get away from it. Scientists are human. Human means <laughs> it means that we're not entirely objective. <laughs> what it means, you can't be entirely objective and be human. Hmm? You would be a Doctor Spock of the uh, Star Trek uh, fame, right? That's not human. Um, so, so how much can we really dismiss the subjective side? Well, they may, may have thought there were a good reason to and so forth, but as he, modern science investigated matter more closely, it became more difficult, rather than getting a, a greater grip on it, it, it kind of slipped out of their hands altogether. Hmm? Just when you thought you were really figuring it all out and, and, uh, and so forth, along came the, the, the idea of uh, the, 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 the truths, if you will, of quantum Physics, quantum mechanics, which which speaks about the material world in ways that Einstein said that can't be true because if it's true, everything we know is wrong. Hmm? And he fought against that, hmm? actually. Um, but then they, then 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 they tried to say, well, it only pertains to the subatomic world. Put it over there; it only counts there, and, and so forth. But but. Um, uh, I would say those more familiar with with quantum reality, those more um, less more more objective, mm-hmm. um, don't find that uh, as 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 plausible mm-hmm. as those who are less objective and more influenced by the prevailing paradigm. Or worldview, you know, we're going. We've invested in this. We're making progress, materially speaking. We think by it, hmm? and like Einstein said, well, if that's true, 
everything we know is wrong. You don't want to wake up in the morning and find that everything you know is wrong. It's a little disconcerting. So there's going to be a tendency, as Thomas Kuhn wrote about years ago, even in science, to dismiss new knowledge, new insights. that just doesn't fit with the way we think it all works because it's very uncomfortable. Like Al Gore's idea of the inconvenient truth of whatever, global warming or something like that. So there are many inconvenient truths that, that because they're inconvenient, they're thought not to be true. They may be dismissed, marginalized, and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so this is the case with, uh, with the quantum perspective on matter, which, which um, in its orthodox form really speaks about an important role of subjectivity. Hmm? And it also sheds light on on, on matter in a way that's, I mean, it causes us to think about it very differently than than people had thought about it. Hmm? It's made up of all these atoms and hard kind of substances you put together and now they find out that that it's mostly space. Hmm? There are no hard things really out there. That's a perception. Hmm? That's very counterintuitive. Uh, so, as a famous intellectual, uh, you may be familiar with Noam Chomsky, who gave a lecture um, some time back that he where he where he played on a on a book by a fellow named Ryle. Um, was quite popular and taught in all the schools. I've cited it in other lectures called The Ghost in the Machine. Hmm? The Ghost in the Machine was a book that said that, there's, that the body is the machine and the ghost is the soul, and I'm going to exercise, exorcise the soul. Hmm? Like you would, Christians would exorcise a ghost, get him out of somebody's who was possessed by him. We're going to exorcise, exorcise not exorcise, exorcise, the soul, the ghost of the soul from the body. It's a superstition. It's not really there. And I'll show the physical science and so forth of it. There's laws of conservation and therefore yada yada and so forth. It's a famous book. Uh, There can't be a soul. Mm -hmm. That's over. We're done with that. Mm -hmm. Of course, again, with the, the quantum perspective, the more you look at it, the more, the deeper you look into the atom, the more you find yourself. And, and the observer has a role to play, and so forth. And there's, there's everything is not, in a, as in a mechanistic world, determined. Hmm? It's already determined what's going to happen, and you could figure it out mathematically. Hmm? It was the idea. Determinism doesn't say much for the idea of a, of a unit of free will and having a, having a role and so forth. So the mechanistic world is very deterministic. Hmm? And a deterministic world really, really uh, takes the substance out of humanity. Hmm. The substance is our humanity, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> our subjectivity. Hmm. Uh, so it, it tends to do away with it. So, uh, uh, Mr. Chomsky pointed out, he said that if you look carefully at the history, hmm, of science, 
the history of science, what's happened over the decades and so forth, it would be more reasonable to arrive at the conclusion that the machine has been exorcised and not the ghost. That the, the, what, what is the mechanistic world? That's been deconstructed. And it's not like a machine and determinism is, 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 is in question. There's a role for will. People are still fighting against this strongly, but it's based on presumptions, largely, that aren't scientific facts, like, the scientific, like, like causal closure, like the systems close, there's no room for anything from outside. It's not a scientific fact at all. But it's an assumption, and much has been invested in that assumption and so forth. So, we don't think that there, there, there is universal causal closure, especially in, 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 with regard to mind and brain. We think that there is, um, there's, there's room for an agent of action, which means will, to have influence on matter. And we are constituted of that. So, so um, if we look at modern science carefully, we'll see that the position of the Gita is very reasonable. Position basically is that consciousness is not reducible to matter. That's a very reasonable position. It's not a popular one, but it's extremely reasonable. It's extremely intuitive. That means everybody intuitively thinks like this and acts like this, that I have consciousness, I make choices. My choices determine actions. So the physical world is moved by my thoughts. We function like this as if that's true. So intuitively we... We... Uh, Intuit it. And it's not just, just you intuit it and I don't. Everybody does. Hmm? Um, it's very reasonable. I've gone into that in other discussions. That the... Um, if I say, I am dead, that's not very reasonable. Right? I can say it, I am dead, but... (laughs) So if I say consciousness is not causal, it's like saying I am dead. It doesn't make any sense. Because in order to make that statement, there has to be consciousness. Consciousness is that which cannot be dismissed. Things can be dismissed as to their reality. We can say... It was an appearance because it was here today and it's gone tomorrow. Hmm? And such is the case with all material manifestations. Even the sun will burn out. So, is it real? We don't think things are re- We don't tend to think things are real in our dreams. Why? Because they come and go. Hmm? Well, things in our waking state come and go too. They just last a little longer. Hmm? But if you want to look at well, forever, then they don't last very long, do they? 
And how much time do we have? <laughs> we got a lot. Hmm? Things are going on for, well, we don't know, forever. Hmm? So, uh, even if you want to look at, well, the idea that the universe began at a certain time, it's going to end at a certain time, that whatever that conjectured time is, it's pretty darn long. And the things that happen in our lives that are so important, that are they're here today, they're gone tomorrow, they're really, they're not on a larger scale, they're no more significant than what happens in our dream life, which we don't give a lot of credence to. We wake up, oh, it's gone, it's over. Anyway, I dreamt about it. I laugh. A monster but devoured me, and you know, but anyway, it's just a dream. Hmm? So our waking life is, and the things that we identify with, are, they can be dismissed as being not real in this sense, because they're just here today. They're appearances only. But consciousness cannot be dismissed. Why? Because it requires consciousness to dismiss consciousness. You understand? It's the ground. You can't. There's, there's like there's nothing underneath that. We may dismiss first-person reporting, introspection, as I said, being inconclusive. But the only thing we really know is that we exist. We don't know anything else. We really, we, we know, and, and, and what we mean by that, that I, I, I know that I exist. This is private. What that, it's a feeling. Hmm? It's a subjective feeling that I exist. And, Exactly what that is, nobody else can feel. You have your way. You think you exist, and I think I exist, and, or I know that I do, and you know that you do. Hmm? It's, it's, it's first person. You understand? It's, it's not something we can pull out and objectively demonstrate. Hmm? We know that we exist. Whether anybody else exists... Whether any things really exist, that's all up for, <laughs> that's all for, uh, uh, questionable. Hmm? That's where the famous atheist Bertrand Russell in his book about the nature of matter concluded, all we really know is our own consciousness. Hmm? It's an honest statement. Now, the, what is that consciousness? What is it? What, what, what is that subjective reality? And so forth. It's become a very interesting topic in the, in the, uh, 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 sciences of, of today because while they tried to get away from it so to speak through the mechanistic world as I mentioned well it's the machine that's been exercised the mechanistic world is, is really if really in question people will argue against that and dismiss the quantum perspective or try to relegate it to, in some way that's not as significant as but this is all the the human problem among scientists, of of the unwillingness to ed, to embrace the implications of knowledge that makes one uncomfortable, hmm? it causes one's knowing to be. Oh, we're back to square one. Hmm? There will be a human, you understand, resistance to that, a bias. Hmm? So, as I said, every scientist is human. Hmm? So. 
Therefore, for human reasons, they may not be as objective as science itself is. You understand? Like I said earlier, if you knew you wouldn't get a job, if you were known to believe in that your interpretation of data led to a certain conclusion that wasn't popular, you might not let people know that. So that you could just go along with the system so that you could get paid. Or, or a cruder example, you find people who are, who are paid and probably paid well to interpret data in ways that works for the corporation. There are many examples. The tobacco industry was a big example of that. There's been movies about it, books about it. Scientists were, you know, more or less, they were informed that your job is online here unless you interpret the data in a way that says smoking is good for you or it's not that bad. And so, what are you going to do? You got your family, you got to, so, so you're human. Many, many, many examples. So, with a, so, Reality is things are up for grabs here. What's the nature of matter? Is 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 is, is a huge topic. It's unresolved, mm-hmm. and uh, the idea that it's just a machine and uh, and, and there's no um, um, no no room for um, uncertainty and um, and. Uh, um, Will, free will, and so forth. These are these are very questionable ideas. And so consciousness has has now become a topic, and they still try to fit it into the mechanistic worldview and somehow or other. But but they're having a hard time, a very hard time. There are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of speculations about how consciousness is really just matter, all in support of physicalism, that kind of monism. We talked about earlier, everything's only the physical, there's nothing else. But it's just not working out. Hmm? You can't demonstrate it conclusively. Hmm? There's always a leap of faith and a conjecture, and neither any theory satisfies anybody else who's got a different theory, and and so forth. So we have another theory here, the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? And um, its method for arriving at its conclusions is... A first-person discipline called it's called spiritual practice, and um, it's reporting as to the nature of consciousness is such that it does not contradict any natural or scientifically known laws. It's reasonable. It's it's universally intuitive in human society. It does not contradict any natural laws. It's more reasonable than physicalism, which isn't reasonable. It's more intuitive. Physicalism is not intuitive at all. That we're just matter, that we're automatons, that our conversations here are no more meaningful than the sound of rain on the roof. We don't think or function like this. Is a, this is a, this is a a talk that no one can walk. Do you understand? If my talk is that that 
there's no self, there's no uh, causal um, consciousness self that gives meaning, purpose to life, then the discussion on the purpose of life is as, as, as meaningful as any other sound, random sounds. So I'm saying to you, nobody can walk that talk. You can write a book like that, but the very fact that you're writing the book is indicative that you can, you're not walking the talk. You understand? Do you follow me, Mongoldar? You're not walking the talk because you think it's meaningful and purposeful and, and it's important. I've got to write a book about it. I've got to tell people, inform them what's the meaning of life. There's no meaning. I've got to write a book about that. So this is not intuitive and nobody can live their lives like that. Hmm? So how practical is it? Now, can you live... Is it intuitive that you, we are consciousness, not matter? And that, that, that yes. Hmm? And consciousness has causal efficacy on, on, on the physical world. Yes. We, we act like that. We think like that. We function like that. It's intuitive. It's reasonable, as I say, to say that consciousness is, is primary rather than something that's just appears for some time and goes away because consciousness can't be dismissed, as we've said. Hmm? To, to, to do so is, 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 is like saying, I'm dead. Hmm? Consciousness is, is, is not primary. You needed consciousness to make that statement. So, so it's the, our life, the life of the Bhagavad Gita, is a livable life. It's a intuitively sensible and reasonable Life. It doesn't contradict any scientific findings, objective findings. You may think the world's like this, but objectively I can show you. Well, it's not true. You may think the moon's made out of blue cheese, but I could take you there and show you. It's not. Then what? Then you have to give up your belief, right? Hmm. Would be the idea. So what I'm saying here is that the idea of the Gita does not contradict any observable, that's the sign, observable fact of life, hmm. observable in a controlled environment. Make a controlled experiment be observed. These are the facts. Only the facts, ma'am. Hmm. That's all we're interested in. That kind of thing. None of the facts, if you will, are contradicted by the view of the Gita. There are interpretations of the facts that are popular that contradict the Gita. Hmm. But those aren't facts. Those are interpretations of facts. Anyone can interpret facts any way they want. Like there are 10,000 conspiracy theories for everything that happens. It's just the facts are one thing. The interpretation of the facts, that's another thing. So the guy can lay out all the facts. This, this happened, that happened. Maybe, but that doesn't necessarily add up to your conclusion. There are different ways to interpret facts. So... <laughs> So, we're on solid ground, is my point here with the Gita, and there is a place for first-person experiential knowing that hmm? shouldn't be dismissed. Again, the only thing we really know is our own consciousness. We exist. We know, we can't prove it. But we know it. Hmm? 
it's thought in some circles in the scientific community that we know that we have what's called qualitative experiences, like we experience what, what red is like, what blue is like, what pain is like, what pleasure is like. We have these feelings, hmm? subjective feelings. I feel it. I have an experience. Hmm? Now, some people in the scientific community want to reduce those feelings to just some function of the brain. Hmm? It's objective. It's not subjective. There's no, it's just a function of the brain. But they can't find in the brain where you, you press this, arrange the brain in a certain way, and you experience red. There's the famous thought experiment called Mary's Room. Hmm? I'll tell it to you. Mary was... Uh, a a color well she was a scientist and she lived in a black and white white world hmm? she lived in a black and white world everything was black and white and in the black and white world she learned every physical fact about color hmm? how the uh, wavelengths you know um, what made up red what made up blue, physically speaking. Hmm? Hmm. She knew everything about the brain hmm? in relation to color. She knew all the physical facts about color. So, in a, in a physicalist's world, that kind of monism, she knew everything about color. But when she walked out of the room for the first time, the black and white room, where she had existed forever, she saw a red apple. And she experienced red. You understand? She had experience red. That was in that she had no experience of, even though she knew all the physical facts about what red is. Hmm? She knew every physical fact about what red is, but she had no experience of red. Hmm. The idea is that outside of the physical world, hmm, there's still another kind of knowing. Hmm. Hmm. That our qualitative experiences of things are independent of a physicalist's worldview. Therefore, physicalism fails, hmm, would be the idea. There are counter-arguments to that and so forth, but I think they're arguments that prevail in favor um, of the way in which it's generally um, was originally uh, proposed to demonstrate physicalism fails. Mary got a kind of knowledge that was independent of the physical. It was subjective and it was profound. She experienced red. Now I know what red is even though I knew everything about red. I knew nothing about it would be the, would be the way to... The, I knew everything about red, I thought. Hmm? I knew everything physical about which most people don't know. Hmm? We don't know all the physical facts about what, what's red or what's blue, but we know what red and blue are hmm? in a way that makes all the physical facts seem insignificant in comparison. Hmm? You could know everything about what an apple is, 
But if you never tasted one, we say you never you don't know what an apple is. And you had the taste of an apple. Suddenly you, you know what an apple is and you can't even explain it. And you don't have to. And I know more about it than you do, even though you know all the facts about it. And I can say, you know nothing about an apple. You understand? Even though you know all the physical facts. Such as the weight of the subjective world, its significance. So to dismiss the first-person subjective experiential kind of reporting, there are reasons for dismissing it, because when people say, oh, God talked to me the other day. Oh, sure. You know? <laughs> okay, I'm not sure we're going to accept that. The guy could be crazy. But, but then again, in the Gita's methodology here, the methodology that the Gita represents, what Krishna is speaking about is something that those who have taken up the Gita have experienced. And they've, what he speaks about here is something that has been experienced by different spiritual disciplines, for that matter. Hmm? Uh, I mean, culturally different, like Sufism, like um, esoteric forms of Christianity. You have some Catholic mystics. Um, you have the Hindu disciplines and different types of Vedanta and so forth. They all have what, what call, we call um, subjective kind of, uh, what is it called? Anyway, there's, there is, there is, um, no, significant correspondence within subjective experience. You experienced the Atma, and so did I. Your discipline was slightly different. You had a different cultural orientation and practice. You used yoga. Mm. Another guy used introspection, gyan. Another person used bhakti. They all had the same experience. They had the same experience and they had a different experience. But what they had in common was considerable enough for us to consider that, well, there's some objectivity to it. Do you understand? And, of course... The method that the Gita advocates requires that the experimenter be very objective and more objective than the scientist. You can't let your feelings get in the way. You can't let your mind and emotions get in the way. The call of your senses. If you are to understand experience the Atma. Hmm? What do we call that? We call that detachment. Hmm? Detachment implies objectivity. Hmm? Do you understand? Hmm? The devotee, the transcendentalist, has to be very objective. Their experiment is that to, to demonstrate that there's a difference between consciousness and matter. Hmm? The theory is there's a difference. And so they begin to close down matter, so to speak, and see what happens. So they close off the senses to certain material experiences that won't be conducive to experiencing that matter is different. Hmm? It's very objective. The detachment required, it's, it's full on. You, you can't just do it in the lab. 
You have to do it all the time. Hmm? You understand? The objectivity of spiritual practice, detachment. Hmm? So the objectivity of the mystic, hmm? as, as for terms, in terms of one who arrives at the what Krishna is talking about when he speaks of the jiva, hmm? Uh, uh, the uh, arriving at that through spiritual practice, that spiritual practice in all the disciplines, hmm, cross-culturally require extraordinary amount of objectivity and detachment. Hmm. Now, it is true that some people experience what Krishna is talking about here without any spiritual discipline. Few people, some people, and they have been reported, there have been books written about mysticism, kind of trying to look at it objectively and so forth. Hmm? But across the board, this is an interesting point, all of those persons, having had some experience that corresponds with what the Gita says through in different material conditions, hmm? that, that somehow or other it happened to them, they all started thinking in a spiritual way. And many of them, or a number of them, weren't spiritual at all. There was a famous guy, I forget his name, and he was imprisoned in a, in a, in a uh, maybe a German prison camp. I think it was a Russian communist, complete atheist and so forth. And in, in the conditions there, the introspection that it caused and so on and so forth, caused him to have a deep mystical experience that corresponds with what the Gita is talking about as the nature of consciousness. So he was completely atheistic. It's a famous case in the history. And of course, he had the experience, and then he started. He wrote. He wrote a number of books. His whole life changed from that point on, and he was completely preoccupied with that experience, what it was about. It, 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 his whole life from that point on was completely about that one experience that happened for whatever, however long. It was so extraordinary, so profound, so world-changing for him, so game-changing. His whole life from there afterwards it was about that. And, the, and, and it was in the spiritual direction. You know, he would have previously just dismissed a book like the Bhagavad Gita. was this some religious, you know, superstition from times gone by. Suddenly, you know, the essence of religion, all religious tradition, the heart of them, the mysticism. He's finding They're talking about this here. I had this experience. I, I had something like this. That, yeah, that, that's what it was like. And I... It's like the guy we saw in Flatland last night. We saw a movie called Flatland. It's a famous, based on a book. Edwin Abbott, I think his name is. So when the, when the, when the, when the two, Flatland is a two-dimensional world. Hmm? Third dimension of what depth, height, wasn't present. So everything was flat. That's why you could see all their organs, because you were looking down at them. Hmm? That's how they... The, Animation depicted them. You could see the organs inside. So, anyway, when he somehow popped into the third dimensional world, it was like a huge epiphany for him. Like he, he couldn't even put it into words. Hmm? There's a third dimension, and. He found out something about reality that was just so overwhelming. Hmm? So such is the nature of slipping into the the, the, the realm of consciousness. Hmm? 
human consciousness, in human life we can enter into the consciousness that we are. Hmm? Hmm. And, and, and this is the mystic's experience. And it's so overwhelming, so profound, that there are no words that can adequately describe it. Hmm? And that doesn't make it less meaningful. That means it's just it's beyond words. It's so profound, so extraordinary. And so he knew. Hmm? What was his name? Square. A-square? Hmm. A-square. When he went into the three-dimensional world, he knew something that he couldn't explain. He knew it, though. Hmm? But he couldn't explain it. Would speak of explain it to a flatlander? Would it be impossible? And he was a flatlander, and just blowing his mind hmm? entirely. That's what we want to do. We want to blow our minds. And the limited ways in which we've become accustomed to thinking due to our orientation to the objective world. Hmm? What is this objective world? We're so oriented to the objective world. We're so dismissal, really, of ourself. The Gita is so wonderful. So it's speaking about you, all that you are, your nature, hmm? and your potential. Hmm? Given the, the opportunities of the, the, the two environments provide, the material environment and the spiritual environment. Hmm? It's such wonderful news, the message. It's a, we don't know the extent to which we are just in complete dismissal and denial and uh, unknowing about all that we are. We're trying to live in flatland. Hmm? Obviously, it had its limitations. Hmm? When he realized, oh, there's three dimensions. There's not two dimensions. And then when he tried to talk about... If there's three dimensions, there could be four. In a three-dimensional world, they said, you're nuts, you're crazy. Hmm? So, so, <laughs> so this is uh, what, where the Gita is encouraging us to go. Hmm? It takes some courage. It takes some objectivity. Hmm? It's not going to be a, a common person, a sheep. Hmm? This follows the crowd. Of course, if you can find someone who has deep experience, then you can follow that person. Think, yes, it's, it's possible. Hmm? This kind of life. So, this is a long introduction here, without going into the Gita. But uh, we we turn next to the Gita's reporting hmm? on what is the nature of the self. I wanted to say why its means of reporting is useful, is valuable, and what it reports is valuable, even though the means and what it reports are often dismissed hmm, in the modern uh, thinking, muddled thinking of the modern, <laughs> I would say, of, 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 the muddle, of the modern world and the scientific uh, community. So here, anyway, in the second chapter, Christian describes, and we'll see, he, he uses a lot of negatives to describe consciousness. It's not this, and it's not that. It's not this, and it's not that. Hmm? That means see, there's, it's hard to talk about it. Hmm? We define things in relation to other things. So if but it's not a thing, as I often say, so it's hard to talk about. But like A-square had a hard time talking about what it means. There's, there's three dimensions. So... So at any rate, I won't go. I will go into the, in the next class. We'll go into the Gita itself. Um, but um, there is 
a, a, a fair amount of, of, of thinking outside of our kind of spiritual practicing circles amongst educated people about the, the idea that consciousness is not reducible. Physicalism is, is, is not the, the, the reality. Um, and then they will hang on in some ways to some ideas instead of letting loose and and uh, acknowledge mysticism as a deep aspect of humanity, but hmm, does the experience, the reporting that I'm eternal, hmm, that I that I transcend biological death and so forth, is that real? People are tend to be a little more reluctant to go with that reporting. But anyway, there's room for it, and there's room for the Gita, hmm? if you will, the Upanishads and these old dusty books in, in modern society. And they, they, they have a very important role in the arguably the most important topic. Hmm? What am I? Hmm? The experience that I am. How valid is it? What are the implications? And so forth. So we we stop there and we'll continue. We'll go into the text itself, the next discussion. Any questions? Yes. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita describes that something that is sad is something that doesn't change. So somebody, I'm, I'm especially thinking of people from like Shunivad philosophy, will say that consciousness is malleable. Consciousness can change based on what we're associating with. And we kind of went into that a little bit with the discussion of the Jiva, and if it associates with the Swarupshaki, its experience is different because it's nurtured. So what does the Bhagavad Gita mean by this, that consciousness is obviously non-changing, mm-hmm. but yet it can experience yeah. variety? That comes up in the discussion of the Gita. It has different experiences. Consciousness is... The, the Jiva is conscious and it has consciousness. That means it's conscious means it's self-luminous. And it also illuminates other things. So it knows itself and it may know other things. It may shed light on other things. Um, and the idea that it's sat, that it exists, means, as I mentioned earlier, that it exists in all circumstances. And it doesn't change means it doesn't change, like it doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not born and then then dies. It's not just an appearance that, well, how real is it? It lasted for ten years. It lasted for a hundred years out of infinity. How real is it? No, it lasts forever. It doesn't change. That's what it means. It, it's perception what it perceives is that it's consciousness and it has consciousness. Using the word in two different ways. Consciousness just doesn't mean awareness. Perception. That's an aspect of a self-luminous unit of knowledge. Like I said, the light, to give an example, the light is luminous. And it illuminates other things. So in relation to consciousness's illumination or perception, 
it will have different perceptions. Perceptions will change. Hmm? Depends what it's in touch with. But it doesn't change. Hmm? And it is not just the perceptions. That's where the Buddhist is errs from the perspective of the Gita. Hmm? Consciousness is not just the perceptions. The light is not just what it illuminates. It itself is luminous. Hmm? So, yeah, the, the soul will have different perspectives, different experiences, and so forth, but that it is an experiencer hmm? forever, has no beginning, no, it doesn't change, it doesn't go through birth, maturation, giving off byproducts or mating and dwindling and dying. It doesn't go through those transformations like all material things do. That's what it means when it says it's unchangeable. Do you follow? Mm -hmm. So it's not here today and gone tomorrow. Mm -hmm. What else? Does that answer your question? Yeah. We'll go into that more when we go into the actual words that are used and so forth. All right, what's the time? Okay, we talked for quite a while. You all be able to follow the talk? Okay, we'll stop there. Srimad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai.